Hello, welcome to Rising, a show with excellent theme song music, I think. Don't you think, Brianna? I love our new music. I have to keep myself from doing a little shimmy as the show starts every day. I'm barely holding back, I can see. All right, what are we talking about? I suspect it has to do with Donald J. Trump. You suspect correctly, Robbie. We are all waiting with bated breath. Some reports say today is the day the former president reportedly told advisors he may as well turn the arrest into a spectacle wishing to be in handcuffs when and if the event happens. This is according to The Guardian. Regarding the classified documents found in his possession, according to ABC News, well, the prosecutors in the special counsel's office have presented evidence that former President Donald Trump deliberately misled his own attorneys about retaining uh, classified materials after leaving office, which, okay, yeah, but they all have classified materials. Everybody has classified materials. That much. Everybody's a bad guy. But look, what do you think about this Trump strategy of saying, if you're going to arrest me, let's get that perp walk going? Ostensibly, I suppose, in an effort to to, to gin up um, you know public sympathy and be able to really make that argument that this is a political prosecution um, and that he's being victimized he's here. Going for like a first they canceled Jesus, now they'll cancel Trump. <laughs> I am your but, retribution. Yeah. This is I apparently the theme of this whole electoral cycle. Do you think that's a good move? Uh, Look, I, I can't deny that it is potentially a good move in the narrow sense of winning, uh, of fighting back against DeSantis in the Republican primary. And we have to be clear, that is Donald Trump's main, that is who he sees as his main opponent right now, mm -hmm. is Ron DeSantis. It, it, that is, he, he understands. It's going to be him and DeSantis in a battle for this nomination. He is, he is turning more of his fire on DeSantis. A lot of his very passive-aggressive truth social messages are about DeSantis. Um, the perception that DeSantis should wait it out. This isn't his turn. Trump should get another shot at it. And he's ungrateful. And, and you know, Trump keeps saying that he gave DeSantis everything right. he, that he has. He elevated him from a, you know, know-nothing local Floridan official mm -hmm. to this status. And if not for Trump, you know, he would still be in that position. Which is, it's True, more uh, absolutely or less. Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, but it's also true that DeSantis doesn't need Trump now. Mm. Um, he's sworn to do many of Trump's policies, but doesn't have the baggage, is not, uh, just ha had successes in the midterms where Trump and Trumpian candidates had really spectacular failures. So he, he has the, you know, the potential electability argument to make. Trump doesn't have a strong electability argument to make at the moment. But yes, could this, could the spectacle of being handcuffed and dragged off to jail um, it, it will infuriate many of his supporters. I, I am seeing people, even people who are somewhat neutral on the Trump-DeSantis question on the right, were not super pleased with how DeSantis has handled this so far. They wanted a stronger denunciation of the, uh, the, uh, the New York district mm -hmm. attorney from DeSantis. DeSantis kind of said, well, I'm not going to get involved with hush payments to porn stars. What are hush payments to porn stars? You know, the hush payments to porn stars that hush payments to porn stars over and over again. Just to remind you what yeah, the Yeah, he got his little is. jab in there. He tried to play it both ways. Yes, you know, mm -hmm. lean into the argument that this is a, a political maneuver here, but not go so far as to say that there isn't some potential wrongdoing here by Donald Trump. Make sure everybody remembers what Donald Trump actually did. You say DeSantis doesn't need Trump, Robbie, but it's worth remembering that the more, most recent morning co consult survey shows that Trump has a 54% support among likely primary voters as compared to DeSantis's 26%, the lowest DeSantis has been in this poll uh, since they started the poll in December. So there is still an argument that to the extent that one of them is more contingent on the likes of the other person's followers, mm -hmm. it's definitely DeSantis that's in the backseat here. De that is true. DeSantis 
at least in theory, has room to grow. There sure. are still a lot of people in this country who probably never heard the name DeSantis, don't sure. know who he is. Everybody knows who Trump is, and everybody's made up their mind about him. Mm. So he, he, it would be very hard, I think, for Trump to grow his support. Uh, if, you, if you support him, you might stick with him. If you don't support him, you're not coming aboard the Trump train for round three. Maybe you are, but it's, that seems like more of a stretch than, who's DeSantis? I haven't heard of him. Oh, well, here, you, know, you could learn about him and you could like him. So that's what he has going for him. You know, I will say this whole thing with the, uh, you know, the rest over the, the payment, hush payments yeah. to porn stars, as Ron DeSantis <laughs> put it. You know, the more I, th so I'm seeing a, 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 some coverage of it uh, in the mainstream. Uh, they had on, it was CNN had on uh, former Representative Peter Meyer last night. Mm. Peter Meyer's a Republican from Michigan who I quite like. Uh, he lost his, he was primaried out of a job. He was one of the Republicans who voted to impeach Trump over January 6th. He was primaried by a far right person who, who got funds from the DNC mm. and beat Meyer and then lost the general. Uh, Good, smart calculation yeah. Democrats made. Uh, and he, you know, he was saying that, look, he voted to impeach Trump. He obviously doesn't think Trump is fit for office. Um, he thinks, uh, he, he kind of alluded to the fact that the Georgian uh, election interference charge is, is a much, a theory, stronger one. Uh, he really thought that this is an ill-considered move to indict Trump over this, over over this payment yeah, made by Michael Cohen, someone you know who is not really should not be considered a trustworthy public figure. Um, that that you know there's a statute of limitations uh, element to it. You know this is this it would be a huge step to bring a former president in like this. That's not that's not to say former president should be above the law, but just like. Prosecutors do consider you know, the, the, how likely are we to actually get this person? How, yes. you, how strong is the evidence? How, how, what are we up against? Yeah, and if you consider all of that, the is this the right walk, thing? Yeah, the perp walk combined with him ultimately being free is an image that plays not so well for Democrats as mm -hmm. compared to the perp walk where he ends up in jail. They canceled Jesus, but like <laughs> Jesus, he will rise again. <laughs> well, speaking of this tee-off between DeSantis and Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had this to say regarding Trump's nickname for him. Let's watch. Which yeah. is your favorite nickname that Trump's given you so far? Is it Ron, Ron De Sanctimonious or Meatball Ron? <laughs> well, I can't. I think uh, even he went off Meatball Ron. I, but. I can't. Uh, I don't know how to spell De Sanctimonious. I don't really know what it means, but I, you know, I kind of like it's long. It's got a lot of vowels. I mean, so we go with that. That's fine. You know, you can call me. You can call me whatever you want. I mean, just as long as you, you know, also call me a winner because that's what we've been able to do in Florida is put a lot of points on the board and, and, and really take the state to the next level. I like Ron De Sanctimonious. I think that's the winner. <laughs> because of all the vowels? Okay, well, look, Robbie, do you think that this is a kind of a cope? Because DeSantis has been criticized in the past for not being sharp enough, witty enough in his comebacks to Donald Trump. Very few people can match Donald Trump when it comes to this kind of verbal banter. He is a man that was famous long before running for president and the, the main character in many a rap song because he always had possessed a certain amount of bravado yeah. and kind of, you know, talent at this kind of, you know, you, you're right. He can't be beaten at that. He's he's genuinely entertaining to listen to. I mean, when when they say meatball rana, I chuckle. I can't help it. It's so silly. It's so purel. It's you say so what, immature. You chuckle when Trump says when, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something so absurd about it. Yeah. But he he knows how to say to coin a, mem a memorable turn of phrase. So what do you make of uh, uh, Ron DeSanctimonious's re reply? There is that good enough? Should he punch back harder, or is he smart to kind of let it roll off and say, hey, at the end of the day, as long as I'm a winner, that's what really counts. 
Look, he, he, I'm sure, has studied the 2016 midterm cycle. What did all of those people, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Rand Paul, Carly Fiorina, and 10 other people, mm. what did they all do wrong, John Kasich, that they could not take down Chris Christie, that they couldn't take down Trump? And they, those people did attack him. Mm -hmm. But it never worked out for the person who, if you got down in the gutter with Trump, you stayed there. Mm -hmm. um, he, so he learned that clearly. So he, he's not ready to get down and dirty with Trump to, to punch back in the same way that Trump does, because it's never worked for anyone else. And he has at least learned that. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, Fox News host Tucker Carlson weighed in on the potential charges against Trump on Monday night. Let's watch some of that. This is a turning point for the country. Now, the headline here is not that they're being unfair to Donald Trump again, though, of course, they are, or even that Trump is the former president of the United States. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> I mean, though, as long as we are indicting retired presidents, where are the charges against George W. Bush for invading Iraq under false pretenses and giving permanent normalized trade relations to China, which completely wrecked our economy? Where are those charges? Don't hold your breath. In Washington, wrecking your own country is not considered a crime. And, of course, George W. Bush knows that well, which is why he doesn't seem worried at all. Criticizing the ruling class, that's what they indict you for. But either way, Donald Trump's former job as president of the United States is not really the point here. Yes, of course you can indict former presidents if they've done something wrong. That's not what this is about. The headline here is that there is, as noted, a presidential race in progress right now. And if you check the polls, you will find that Trump is leading the Republican field. That's the unprecedented thing, taking out your opponent using the justice system. If the Democratic Party is allowed to do this, allowed to crush the presidential frontrunner, the main threat to their power, with a bogus criminal case, where does that leave us? We're done. Because that precedent will live forever. So, so there's... Some certainly in there that I agree with. Actually, I think that was common from two nights ago. So I alluded to this on the show yesterday. The part about George Bush, I, I, I think that's dead you gotta on. Give it to him. I think that's dead on. Yeah, and it's a kind of an indictment of the left that you're hearing that particular brand mm -hmm. of criticism. And I don't remember when the left talked like, about prosecuting. I George W. Bush? vaguely a very long time ago. Do Before you remember he became, that? you know, kind of a resistance hero yeah, for not um, being Michelle Trump, Obama's you know, pew buddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so look, I, I definitely would push back against the idea that the reason that Trump is being targeted is, is that because he's, he's a champion the of the yes, populist, not. you know, right or anything like that. But I think it is bad optics. Um, it's not that I don't think that there is some underlying wrong mm -hmm. there. If not in the New York case, then in the Georgia case, most likely that's a stronger case. I saw Van Jones and some other liberals mm -hmm. making that um, argument as well. But the question is, given the inconsistency between what Trump is accused of, what other presidents have been accused of, mm -hmm. the more significant national, uh, international issues that other presidents have been mired in, the choice to prosecute Donald Trump, a former president, as he is leading the Republican presidential primary race, it does have the feel of the kind of political prosecutions that we have criticized as Americans of other countries. I, I really right. am hesitating to make a com comparison between Donald Trump and like Lula here. Yeah. But the idea there, there is often an underlying something there to, to, to the charges that are being waged. There is, was a lot of corruption in, in Brazil. It wasn't that there was a nothing there, but it was the idea that the only reason that he was being targeted for, for, for yeah. corruption 
was because they wanted to stop him from winning. And he was a popular candidate. I totally candidate. agree with that. Yeah, and there, you know, this is this prosecution is to the extent it's coming from like the Democratic coalition. You know, these are the people who say democracy is at stake. But then we're going to resort to kind of a counter-democratic. Not exactly, because again, he's he, Trump was incautious and may have committed a variety of crimes. Sure. But the the democratic, the uh, an anti-democratic impulse right. as the means to hold Trump accountable. Trump was defeated at the ballot box in 2020. It seems very much within the realm of possibility, if not the more likely alternative, that he could be defeated again if he was the general election candidate. You, you, if you have faith in democracy, you have to trust at some level these decisions to the people. He was defeated. He was beaten through the normal democratic system, not because he was arrested and you weren't allowed to vote for him anymore. Um, so, so. There's, I think there should be more trusting of the wisdom of the people. Right. And unfortunately, the Democrats have not been showing a lot of trust in democracy. And on my radar coming up next, I will be talking about how they're trying to put their fingers on the scale and mm -hmm. the Democratic primary race. Stick around. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, today I ask... Are Democrats trying to cancel the Democratic primary? Well, at least one Democratic booster wants them to. A self-described influencer known as Politics Girl went viral last week with a TikTok embodying everything wrong with establishment Democrats. Take a listen. Listen, Democrats, can we please stop talking about primarying Joe Biden? Who should run against Joe Biden? Will Democrats get behind Joe Biden? This many Democrats want an alternative to Joe Biden. Can we just... Not. The absolute last thing democracy needs right now is a democratic primary. We're in late stage capitalism with a corrupt Supreme Court on a knife's edge between autocracy and democracy, and people want to spend $100 million to undermine our successful incumbent when the alternative is the twice impeached criminal ex-president or the man who is single-handedly turning Florida into a fascist dictatorship? Why? I know people are excited for fresh young leaders with bright new ideas, but those fresh young leaders will never get a chance if we don't protect democracy now. Politics girl, a.k.a. Lee McGowan, goes on to say that Biden has accomplished more in two years than any president ever, more than FDR, more than LBJ. And instead of making any attempt at all to back up that big claim by naming a single solitary accomplishment, she appeals to Biden's decency and pivots to his thoughtful staff who have plans for the future of women's rights, gay rights, and voters' rights. No details on what those plans may be. Again, no specifics are offered beyond claims that Biden supports a higher minimum wage uh, and lower health care costs. Of course, we are in the longest period since the advent of the minimum wage without a minimum wage raise. Seven Democrats voted against a $15 minimum wage in 2021. And Biden made it clear during the pandemic, no less, that if Congress did manage to pass universal health care, a plan which 88% of Democrats and 49% of Republicans support, he'd veto it. But the implication of Lee McGowan's approach is clear. As long as Biden is seen to be better than his Republican counterpart, even incrementally, Democrats shouldn't ask whether he's the best America has to offer, or more importantly, whether any other candidates are better for them and their interests. Now, this video seems to be an obvious dig at Marianne Williamson, who to date is the only Democrat to challenge Joe Biden's presumptive run. Lee offers a much softer touch than the women of The View, who had this to say about Marianne Williamson recently. So now 
I'm not feeling her crystals and her aura. Okay. And <laughs> so, you know something, a, a couple of things. Number one, Marion Williamson has the sense of humor of this cup. <laughs> and despite being slightly more subtle than the women at The View, this video still was deeply triggering to lots of leftists who, I argue, are triggered because they have a better understanding of how power and corruption work in this country than liberals. And consequently, see the constant push to vote blue, no matter who, as part of an incentive structure that produces underwhelming candidates who betray their campaign promises, and most importantly, betray the working class. And the hypocrisy is nauseating. Politics Girl stresses the importance of environmental protections. And while it's true that Biden made some marginal progress by undoing Trump's anti-climate orders and passing certain climate investments via Build Back Better, his recent drilling grant in the Arctic, known as the Willow Project, directly contradicts his promise not to drill on federal lands and will produce as much carbon dioxide as is released by 65 coal-fired power plants each year or 51 million gas-powered cars over a 30-year span. It's a move backward from 2050 net-zero emissions goals, and it directly threatens the health of local communities who will be sacrificed on the altar of big business, just like the residents of East Palestine. Still, Politic Girl insists that we must vote for Joe Biden, stressing, of all things, his foreign policy leadership. Let's listen to a little bit more if you can stomach it. It could be argued that the biggest reason democracy is winning in this David and Goliath story in Ukraine is because Joe Biden had the foreign policy experience and humility to gather world leaders together and build a coalition to support them. He can run on all of that. We don't need to replace him. We need to spend our time and money giving him a bigger majority in Congress so he can get even more accomplished. What a pitch. Look, this particular point is hard to swallow in light of reports that the U.S. has repeatedly attempted to undermine peace negotiations in Ukraine since Russia's evasion a year ago, reports that we've been credibly accused of attacking the energy infrastructure of a major ally in order to force them to commit to fighting with us to the last Ukrainian, that's Nord Stream, of course, and the fact that China's Xi Jinping visited Moscow this week to negotiate peace with Putin while Biden rejects the possibility of a ceasefire. But I doubt any of these arguments would carry much weight with politics girl. Her theory of change was made clear in that last segment. To the extent Biden has not lived up to expectations, it's because, in her view, he lacked sufficient majorities in Congress. If Democrats just vote harder, they'll be blessed with an even better Biden the next time around. Or so the saying goes. Now, this reasoning holds only if you trust the underlying premise that Joe Biden wants to do better, but his hands are tied. Yet if you pay attention to the corrupting influence of money in politics, you'd realize that the problem isn't that good guy Democrats are outnumbered by bad guy Republicans, but that too many folks on both sides of the aisle are more committed to their donors' interests than their constituents' interests. There's basically no relationship between what the people want and what Congress does, not because the people are divided from each other, but because elites in Congress are divided from workers by their class interests and their corporate commitments. Biden's straight up telling Democrats he'd veto Medicare for all, a policy with 88% Democratic approval, and corporate media acolytes don't seem especially interested in connecting the dots as to why between the lobbying dollars and the bipartisan oligarchy's agenda. 
Unlike liberals, leftists understand that politicians rely on so-called rotating villains within their own party to tank legislation when they technically have the votes to pass something. See, for example, Manchin and Cinema and the first two years of Biden's presidency. Or else they blame their inaction on fake parliamentary blockers like the parliamentarian, someone who we, none of us had really heard of until 2021. That being the case, what sense does it make to follow politics girl's advice to simply vote a little harder? Obama had a filibuster-proof majority, but lo and behold, there's always a Joe Lieberman-type figure to the rescue. Now, politics girl does something liberals love to do, appeal to so-called facts on paper that apparently prove how great Biden is. The reason people don't like him, according to this logic, isn't because of any failing of his own, but because of, quote, lying propaganda networks selling us on the idea that he is a demented evil pedophile trying to run the country. Holy straw man, Batman. <laughs> now, I have my issues with Biden, but I assure you, none of them are that I think he's a pedophile. That's nowhere near the top of my list. If we just want, if we just want, I'm sorry, healthcare, please, please, sir, can we have a little bit of healthcare? I mean, politics girl could at least pretend to engage with the material concerns of a disaffected working public, but she won't. Look, politics girl isn't wrong about the stakes here. Republicans are banning Toni Morrison and trying to bring back child labor to loosen a tight labor market in which workers actually have a little bit of power right now and to pass a federal ban on abortion. Won't somebody think of the children as right? But as I asked Noam Chomsky once in a viral pre-2020 election interview, when does all of this vote blue no matter who finally end? What are the long-term consequences of everybody on the broad left, Democrats, liberals, everyone, saying that under any circumstances, we will vote for a Democratic candidate as long as they are incrementally better than the Republican candidate. Does that way of thinking contribute to the rightward shift of the Democratic Party over years? And what mechanism will ever stop that shift if we're not willing to ever, under any circumstances, leverage our votes? What you're saying, if you think it through, is... We should help Trump win because maybe in the long run that'll affect the Democratic Party. That's a terrible choice. Helping Trump win, as you're proposing, would mean four more years of destruction of the environment, getting possibly to tipping points, at which would be irreversible, certainly making any effort to deal with it very difficult. It would mean sacking the judiciary with young ultra-right lawyers, top to bottom, so that nothing would be possibly done for a generation. Now, reasonable minds can and did disagree here, but I did not feel I got a satisfying answer. I do not think it's satisfying to be told that you're helping Trump win, because every four years there's going to be some Trump-like figure for whom their election will yield real consequences, negative consequences for a left agenda. And like politics girl, Chomsky seemed unwilling to contend with whether validating a system that, according to experts, is completely untethered from real democracy, a system which, in fact, fails to represent the people in the least, is part of the problem. Democrats at this point are openly admitting that they will not allow a real primary. They've moved the South Carolina uh, primary deadline, which Biden won handily with an assist from Jim Clyburn, to make his victory seem like a fait accompli. 
and the DNC may not allow Williamson to even have the opportunity to debate Joe Biden at all. The anti-democracy ethos is coming straight from the top of the administration. The White House press secretary confused the mic at her press podium for a mic at a comedy cellar when asked about whether Democrats should clear the field for Biden, joking that she'd be able to answer the question better if she had a crystal ball. Lots of original Marianne jokes here. But it takes no great powers of prediction to guess what will happen if the Democratic Party continues to abuse its base. Only 12 percent of Democrats want Biden to lead the party. In 2016, Democrats ignored a deeply unpopular candidate and, according to Democratic insider Donna Brazile, rigged the race against Bernie Sanders. And to what effect? What happened in 2016? Meanwhile, the right has a much higher tolerance level for ideological diversity. Its right flank forced to the vote over the House Speaker and won powerful concessions that left electeds should be envious of. But they're not. Instead, House progressives who once claimed to center issues like universal health care have pre-endorsed Biden before Biden has even committed to running. When I asked Representative Rokana why, on a recent episode of my podcast, Bad Faith, this is what he had to say. It's still so early in the game. Why commit, I would argue, prematurely to voting and endorsing for uh, Joe Biden? I said that the person I would support would be Bernie Sanders, but given that he has said that he's not running, I think that the president uh, has done a lot of things that have been more progressive than I anticipated. I mean, the climate bill that he ended up passing, the sense that uh, the bill back better, even though it didn't get passed uh, for universal child care, $15 wage. So I think he has uh, won confidence from a lot of progressives in adopting uh, significant chunks of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders' uh, his agenda. That, and I'm going to support him uh, for re-election. That said, some of the attacks I've seen, uh, at least online, on, on, on uh, Marianne Williamson are totally uh, beyond the pale. I mean, a democracy should have competition. And if someone wants to run and run on ideas, uh, that's their right. Now, I appreciate him saying that Marianne has the right to participate in a primary, but my goodness, that's a low bar. I hate to say it, but all of that, you know, Biden exceeded expectations talk sounds an awful lot like a softer version of what Politics Girl has to say. And I think it's no accident. Politics Girl simply distilled the vote blue no matter who logic that has led to a Democratic Party that no longer pretends to care what its constituents think. Just suck it up and vote. Chomsky told me that not voting gets you Trump. It's possible, however, that voting for corporate candidates on both sides of the aisle guarantees that the best we can ever hope for is only incrementally better than that. And I'm afraid that too many Americans can't survive incrementally better than the status quo for much longer. Well, look, I do agree with you that the whole kind of how is it? What's the, what's the threat of having someone challenge Biden? I mean, he he is overwhelmingly likely to be the Democratic nominee for president again, no matter what anyone on the left does. Or, so challenging him, putting a little bit of pressure on him to have different policies. If you want him to have different policies, this is no threat to the Democratic effort to battle Trump or to battle DeSantis. It's no threat whatsoever. So it, it's it's. Very silly to see people like the people you're calling out here get worked up about something that will hardly make 
it, it would be a drop in the bucket. Hardly make any difference at all. Yeah, with all due respect to Marion Williamson, and I, I really very much hope I'm wrong about this, but if Bernie Sanders, with his popularity numbers and his kind of name recognition and all that he had going for him, wasn't able to get the yeah. job done, you know, the idea that Marianne presents such a threat that they have to kind of openly mock the idea of democracy and try to kind of openly undermine the primary process, you know, it really does a lot to um, uh, uh, undermine the, the credibility of Biden's, you know, potential yeah. run and, and candidacy here. So it seems to me that all signs would point to the direction of just being gracious and open and saying we welcome Marianne into the context and let it burn out on its own if that's what's going to happen. And so it begs the question. Why all of this um, concerted opposition? Why all of the mocking? Why why all of the pushback? I think Biden, with the Biden side, because it's not really him doing this, but the, the Biden coalition looks weaker and more vulnerable than mm. they get so worked up about something like little old Marianne Williamson. Yeah. yeah, well, maybe that's an opening for her. Maybe that, that bodes <laughs> well for her in the long run. We'll have more rising for you after this. The Fed is set to raise interest rates again today, increasing at a quarter point from 4.75 to 5 percent. Americans have experienced a 0 to 4 percent hike since March 2022, and many economic experts are wondering what another surge could do to the financial sector amid this banking crisis. As banking expert Jim Bianco pointed out in a thread of charts on his Twitter page, bank deposits were decreasing leading up to the Silicon Valley bank failure. As you can see, this is just a few weeks before the SVB crisis, and this is two days before here. The bank run continued, plummeting deposits even further. Bianco makes the case that any Fed increase will force regional banks to bleed and bleed deposits, risking a contraction crisis. Mm. So yeah, one of these arguments, and it's difficult because the politics of this are a little all over the place. There have been unexpected allies. They're blessedly all over the place, frankly. Yeah, so I mean, there are people who say, you know, a bailout of the rich is par for the course. It shouldn't be done. Taxpayers shouldn't be doing these bailouts. Mm. But there are some who are sympathetic to that view, but who are also just slightly wary of what it would mean for their to be a crisis of confidence in some of the smaller banks in the country and whether or not that would cause there to be contraction, whether or not we would end up with just a handful of banks that were then too big to fail and then necessitated more urgently a bailout uh, whenever there's any kind of crisis. Right. I mean, it, we, would in a, we would have been in better shape if we had let them fail the first time all those years ago. Yeah. Uh, the I think the, the kind of uh, one of the libertarian or the Austrian economic perspective on these kinds of things is that um, once you've gotten to the point where you need to, where people are saying government has to swoop in and rescue, like the pain has already happened. Mm. The suffering, the, the, the binge drinking already took place. Now you have to have the hangover. You can delay the hangover by, by drinking more, but you're, you're going you're gonna to have to feel that at some point. So we're, 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 we're hurting ourselves. We got to get right. <laughs> And you gotta you gotta let the hangover happen, and that will ultimately be in everyone's long term better. Well, yeah, and I think the question is also who is hurting. Whereas mm -hmm. I think there was much more sympathy for the idea of protecting depositors, and certainly we have a kind of national mm -hmm. consensus about protecting depositors up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I think most people, one, were very happy to see the um, the bank bank itself go down. Right? But then the question becomes, now why are we in this conversation about mm -hmm. upping the cap on mm -hmm. the, the FDIC-insured deposits such that 
increasingly people who have huge amounts of money in the bank, mm -hmm. over $250,000, millions of dollars in the bank, like a lot of these Silicon Valley guys did and people did, why is it that they now get federally back guarantees simply because they're the ones that were in crisis? What about all of the rest of the people? What right. about renters? What about people with credit card debt? What about all kinds of other people with student loan debt, et cetera, who have no similar guarantees that the government is going to swoop in and bail well, them they out should, when they're in crisis? Right. They should pay for insurance. Right. For, you know, it can be, insurance can be whatever, but nobody should get more protection than whatever they're, they're owed based on the insurance payments they're making. And in fact, they've been resisting exa yeah. doing exactly that. Yeah. The, then that, that's fine. And I, I would say that's fine. But then you have to let the depositors fail beyond yeah. what they're paying for. That's just how it has to work. It, so this doesn't make any sense that they came in and said, well, we'll just cover everybody anyway. If, if you want a system where everyone's covered any, for everything, so anyway, then, pay pay the, then make them pay account. the insurance. Right, right. Yeah. Or else it's unfair to people who are, who are not, you know, hoarding their money in these banks or, right. or who are, you know, have taking and using financial services in some other way, right. like and, you said. And, and moreover, you know, the very people, I'm sorry, there, there's an, an, an asymmetry in the kind of interventions that are being done now. So the government is expected mm -hmm. to cover depositors, even people who are in no way mom and shop, small business owners, but these big Silicon Valley tycoons who invested in this bank, used this bank, bank because it conferred certain benefits that they were able to take, but now we're socializing the risk. Okay. Additionally, they were often pushing for the exact kind of deregulation that set them up for this crisis. They would have had there been um, the pre-Dodd-Frank uh, or pre-deregulation uh, de of Dodd-Frank under Trump rules in place requirements to do the exact kind of stress testing of what would happen if you had invested in these long-term bonds and interest rates goes up. The exact kind of stress testing would have been required of a bank of this size, but for that deregulation, which is why some people were a little uh, irritated by an appearance Barney Frank made on uh, the, the uh, New York, New York Times' daily podcast show, The Daily with Michael Barbaro this morning, in which he took no responsibility for leaving Congress, advocating for deregulating his own Dodd-Frank legislation, and then going to work at one of the banks that he was previously regulating. He says that he has absolutely, he thinks there's no relationship between the deregulation and what ended up happening. Right. And justifies participating in that kind of revolving door politics by saying explicitly, I went to Harvard Law and could have gotten a higher salary if I never joined politics. So I'm basically entitled to, to get a $300,000 plus he salary He also now. said, if, he said from his perspective that Signature Bank was perfectly financial health, financially healthy. Right. They should not have closed it. He said it was political punishment for the bank being heavily leveraged in the crypto space. Correct. Uh, which, so he sounds a little bit like he's actually making the defense Sam Bankman-Fried was making. And I don't, know that, I don't know that that's a, an, a yeah. comparison that speaks well of anybody in this particular moment. I mean, the polls are overwhelmingly show that Americans of all political stripes don't believe the taxpayers should have to bail out financial industry, the financial industry when they make a bad bet. At the end of the day, there was no unknown unknown in this scenario. They knew that their deposits were only insured up to $250,000. Yeah. They knew that they were at risk. And other people who are more savvy investors, they either, either spread their money around, keep it in smaller amounts in multiple banks, or invest it elsewhere. And now, I'm sorry, over and over again, we see this scenario where we're told that people have to, to deal with the consequences of the bargains that they strike when you're anybody except for I say that. venture capitalists. Yeah, well, they should too. Yeah. They absolutely should too. And they're, uh, they're coming in for a lot of criticism because this is 
rank hypocrisy. It yeah. really is rank hypocrisy. Um, and it's going to make you, if, you're make, if, if that's the standpoint you're articulating, you're going to end up sounding less credible every other time you, you're warning about bailouts and such things. Right. It has well, to be for everybody. Speaking of institutional credibility, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen had this to say about the state of the economy this week. And take an economy that is performing very well. We've had the fastest recovery from a downturn um, that we've ever seen and the fastest recovery of any nation around the globe. Um, the unemployment rate is near a 50-year low. The economy is doing well, and it would, it would threaten all of that. Now, is this out of touch, or can you just not win in these situations? Is it, is it always both. a loser politically? <laughs> both. I mean, Absolutely it, both. Is it possible to say anything good about the economy without being well, perceived as not being attendant to the still urgent needs of, of the population? Sure. Uh, I mean, you never want to be playing defense on the economy issue. The econ People have to have a general perception that the economy is doing well, which sometimes they do. They mm -hmm. don't have that right now. Yeah. Because, because the Everything costs a lot of They're money. They're raising interest rates. <laughs> that costs a whole lot of money. Of yeah. So, I mean, there's literally, realistically, there's not a lot she can do to make it sound like, you know, to put lipstick on a pig or whatever. Yeah. I mean, there are good things about the economy, the full, the employment levels are, are but have then, been decent. But then you have people like um, Larry Summers literally arguing yeah. that we need to fix that problem. Yeah. They're advocating for child labor to loosen up the labor market. They're advocating for higher unemployment rates. They want to drive up interest rates so that employers have more incentive to fire employees. That's exactly what the economy demands because, again, the cure always requires the poor and working classes to pay and never ask the elite to get a bailout to be the ones that are responsible at all for the kind of spending that's inflationary or, as you always point out, military spending. Yeah. Yeah, let's cut some of that. No more bailouts. It can't be heads I win, tails you lose. Yeah. Just shouldn't be that way. Yeah. We'll have more rising after this. Students, parents, teachers, and organizers rallied at Renaissance High School in the Bronx on Monday to protest a military recruitment and job fair event hosted by U.S. Congress members Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Adriano Espaillat. Advocates accused AOC of backtracking on her anti-war campaign promises and policies opposing military recruitment practices that primarily target black, brown, and Latino low-income students, Democracy Now! reports. The rally took place on the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq. AOC has denied hosting a military recruitment event and said it was a student services fair. Politics is so crazy because people can just like wake up and make up whatever they want to say about you. And it'll be totally false. And people will just believe it, right? They'll just believe it. So today... Someone made a made up a rumor that I, me, was hosting a military recruitment fair for high schoolers. Now, like, does that sound like something I would do? Like, no shade to anybody, but just me. Does that sound like something I would do? No? Then basic due diligence would mean ask a follow-up question, right? Like, just because someone is like said something on Twitter and posted a screenshot like ask the 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 next step is not I'm just going to believe that and share it the next step is let me ask a follow up question 
In 2020, Ocasio-Cortez proposed a ban on U.S. military recruitment on the Twitch platform. Joining us now to discuss this is host of the Savvy Saps podcast, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome. Good morning. So great to have you with us. So is there truth to the idea that uh, she was hosting a military recruitment fair? She's complaining. She's saying everybody's getting it wrong. But I'm seeing plenty of reporting that says military recruitment was one of the options at this kind of career day event. What say you? It was one of the options at the career day event. Um, I've actually spoken to the protesters who were at this event. I know some of those protesters uh, personally. Uh, so basically, there were military academies that were present at this event, and they were the headliners for the event. There were other organizations there as well, but you had organizations such as the United States uh, Air Force Academy, the Naval Academy. All four branches there were represented, and for AOC to pretend like they weren't really a part of this or they weren't a significant part of this event uh, is really disingenuous uh, on, on her point. Uh, also in that response vid, what she also mentions is that there were protesters who were outsiders that didn't even live there. That's actually, actually incorrect. Uh, the protesters were from the Bronx and they were from Queens. And Queens is the, the area that Adriano represents. So the protesters are people who live there in that area. She also went on to say in that video that in order to get into an academy like West Point, you need to receive a nomination from a congressman or a congresswoman uh, slash politician. That's actually incorrect. Uh, I actually know multiple people that have attended West Point. I'm from a military family. I'm very familiar with how these military academies work. And what she leaves out is the fact that a lot of people attend West Point because they have a nomination from their ROTC unit from high school. You do not need uh, a nomination from a congressperson in order to attend West Point. That was just an excuse for her to, to, to explain why she needed to be there. I also want to add to people, it's important that you understand, she goes on to explain that these are academies, they're getting college education. But the idea that when you join these, these military academies is that you are going to go into the military afterwards. When you sign up to join West Point, you are joining the Army. Uh, so AOC is now willing to have this conversation with someone who's very familiar with the process, who knows a lot about the military. She wants to get on Instagram instead, instead of posting that video on Twitter, which is where she received a lot of the criticism. And I also thought it was interesting that she goes on to say in that video that the people who are criticizing her are typically people who come after women and people of color. Hmm. Well, I'm a black woman, so she can miss me with all of that. Uh, this is just an excuse. I think AOC needs to own up to what she did here and stop calling people names, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, this is such an interesting one because, I, I mean, I think the devil's advocate version of this is AOC went because she wanted to participate in this job fair. Job fairs, in my memory of how high school was so many years ago, was that there were often people from military institutions at those events as well. And that saying that AOC hosted a military event might be a military recruitment event, might be somewhat, you know, kind of hyperbolic, somewhat of an exaggeration, but also one could critique her for, and say something along the lines of, you said you were opposed to these kind of recruitment events. You should have recused yourself from this one if any part of it was associated with a military institution. And, and do you think that's a meaningful difference? Should people, would, be, would people be on sure footing um, and be less uh, kind of targeted by AOC's pushback here if instead of arguing that she 
hosted a military recruitment event, simply attended a job fair at which there was also a military recruitment and that perhaps she should not have done so? I think it's the way that the flyer represented the event. It said, join AOC and uh, Adriano uh, at this event. So they were announced as kind of like the host, so to speak. Uh, the protesters did speak to one of the adults that was able to get inside of the event. And they said there was a giant blow up picture of AOC's face. So I think that's why some people were using the phrase that she hosted the event. Now, we'll go on to say, um, I'm incredibly disappointed with democracy now. They have actually revised their statement. Apparently, AOC's office contacted them, and then they made that change. But it's really disappointing because for journalism, you're supposed to reach out to both sides. Uh, I'm curious as to see why didn't democracy now interview any of those protesters that were at that event and get their side of the story instead of just changing their statement. So it makes me they... wonder... How did they revise the statement from what to what? So the original statement that you just that you guys showed at the very beginning, they actually went back on Twitter and they retweeted the revised statement and said that they were contacted by AOC's office, that this was not uh, a military event. This was just a, a student services event, yada, yada. And there were no military recruiters there. Now, if they would have actually spoken to the protesters, they would know that there actually were military recruiters there. In fact, uh, a former colonel actually was interviewed by one of the protesters, and that's on video. So I was really disappointed with them for not following up with the other side to get the other side of the story and just taking that push from AOC's office and choosing to retract their statement. So I, I see, I, I pulled up the Teen Vogue uh, coverage of this, and they similarly have an editor's note at the bottom where they say this story and its headline were updated after publication to include a statement from Representative Ocasio-Cortez's office and note that Ocasio-Cortez co-hosted the event with Representative Espaillat rather than with the military academies themselves. So they obviously didn't. I mean, it's, it's possible that Democracy Now! and Teen Vogue or anyone else who wrote about this reached out for comment and didn't hear back and then published the story and then got this response from AOC's office because they, you know, they were getting all this, all this heat. That happens all the time. So it might, it might be that they sought the answer, didn't get it, published anyway. That would be something you know, any of us mm -hmm. would do. So. Yeah. Well, look, here's what uh, anti-war organizer Richie Marino had to say at Monday's rally. A lot of youth here um, are struggling to find jobs. Uh, many youth here are not prepared to go to college, right? Instead of uh, bringing military recruiters here, we should be having a, a jobs fair. We should be having a college fair. Um, Renaissance High School is an arts and theater school. Where are the arts and theater programs represented here, AOC? You're saying this is a student services fair. Where are the services for the youth? So, Sabi, I need to understand that there were exclusively, that, that protesters seemed to be characterizing it as uh, an event that exclusively was hosting military recruiters. Were there not, was it not a broader job fair in addition to West Point and other military affiliated organizations? Based on what I saw from the flyer, the military academies, they were the headliners of the event. There were a couple other organizations like the Department of Education to help students out with the changes to the FAFSA. But other than that, there weren't that many other, I think um, a city year might've been one of the other organizations, but the, the military service academies, like they were the headliners of the event. Um, I've been to multiple uh, student fairs as well. So I'm very familiar with how it works. 
But I think the problem that you run into with this event is if AOC would have just owned up to the fact and said, yes, there were military academies at this event, and yes, there were also military recruiters, which he is saying they were not, if she would have just owned up to that, I think people wouldn't be as as furious. Now, some people are still going to be frustrated because it goes against what she said in 2020. But I think where AOC went wrong in that response video is she starts to demonize the protesters. She starts to lie about them and say that they were outsiders when they live in the Bronx or they live in Queens, uh, which are both of their uh, representative areas. And I think that is what, what is really upsetting people, uh, the statements that she made about them and also saying that these people who are criticizing her typically come after women and people mm. of color. And she leaves out the fact that some of the protesters were both women and, and people of color. So it's just another thing. Like, she made it seem like she was being attacked. I know one of the protesters did try to talk to her when she entered the event and when she exited the event, and she just ran away from them. Mm. So this is the same person who told people that protests are supposed to disrupt. I guess she didn't mean that in reference to her. Like, she doesn't even want to talk to them. So if she wants people to ask questions, she's not giving them the opportunity to do so. She's running away instead. Yeah, I, I think that's fair criticism of her for how she handled it and how she framed it. I, for myself personally, the two of you might disagree. That's fine. And I don't feel this strongly particularly. I, I guess I, I wouldn't have a problem with a job fair where military recruitment is one of the options among many, but I, I, it does look like that's pretty discordant with what she said on the subject previously, and then how she kind of blamed people for being mad about it in a very, oh, you're, you know, you're not covering me fairly, mm. uh, which is something, which is a well she returns to over and over again these days. Um, Sabrina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll have more Rising right after this. Fox News' Peter Ducey asked National Security Council coordinator John Kirby about President Biden's decision to sign a bill to declassify COVID-19 origins intelligence. Let's watch. He says he will declassify COVID origins intel except info that would harm national security. Is there a bigger national security threat than something that killed 1.1 yeah. million people? Yeah, in this country? I've, seen, I've seen some of the commentary uh, on your network about this. Uh, the president obviously has to balance transparency with national security. Peter, of course he does. Um, right when coming into office, ordered the declassification of what the DNI had on COVID origins, ordered the entire intelligence community, and added the Department of Energy to that list. Uh, and where is it? Hey, let me finish my answer. If we're talking about the beginning added of Added the Department term. of Energy and the National Labs, told them to keep studying it. Um, we have kept Congress informed. Some of that has to be in a classified way right now. But it's always a balance between the, uh, the public's right to know, right, not need, but right, and our obligation to protect national security. We're not going to get anything. Yeah. I, I hate to let everybody down, and I wish it were different, but they are going to keep all important information to themselves, and there's no way you can make them. I mean, John, right? John Kirby has to understand what Ducey is teeing up here. The idea of if the, the, the label of national security interests would cover everything having to do with COVID potentially and, and the, lab, the lab leak or whatever it was. They would redact it was a ham sandwich. 
Exactly. So, I mean, to keep going back to the idea that, you know, it's national security, it's national security. I was getting at this a little bit in my conversation with Matt Taibbi about the contours of the Twitter files and how do we know what you've been given. And, and this is this fundamental document archive question. And one of the ways that lawyers have figured out how to try to get at it is to say, well, I understand you can't give me everything, but can you at least offer me a little bit of a description of what you're not giving me and why more specifically so I can maybe agree with you on some points, okay, that's classified, you shouldn't give it to me, and on other points say, this seems flimsy, offer me either better justification or turn it over. And I, it seems to me that I, I would like for journalists to start asking some more pointed questions about how they qualify what's in the national security interest, what does that mean to be yes. in the national security interest, and how they're making those distinctions, what the timeline is for releasing additional information, how much information, how many pages of documents are being withheld at this point, who is reviewing those documents and what the review what what what's the metric upon which they're reviewing them because otherwise you're right there's just there there's ample opportunity for people to use security interest as a cover for non-disclosures and a lack of transparency to my mind what ca counts as national security sensitive that needs to be redacted is US spies mm. in Russia China and elsewhere their mm -hmm. names mm -hmm. so that they're not apprehended like Sure, that you can redact from the documents. I get it. And that's about it for yeah. me. Uh, it's that level of, of secrecy that is okay. But uh, of course, we know that our government cannot be trusted to decide what should actually be kept secret and what's not secret. That's why I, I never really cared about this, the classified documents scandal with Mar-a-Lago, and mm -hmm. then it turned out Biden had them too, and so does Pence, because they just classify everything. It doesn't mean it sure. actually has any national security uh, component or is putting is any sensitive information. Uh, and this yeah. is the same there, and, and yeah, we just, we, we <laughs> It's frustrating. There, there would need to be, I mean, there needs to be some kind of sweeping mandatory disclosure law that would pass Congress and be signed by the president, which is never going to happen of any party. But by the way, we party. had that with respect to the Kennedy assassination documents. Yeah. They were supposed, the, the sweeping congressional law that everybody voted on said all of these documents were supposed to be made public by 2017. And Donald Trump released some of them, but they've been coming out they in say, drips and drabs. Oops, Biden released I a forgot this last one. Year. Right. They're, they're still holding on to like a thousand <laughs> documents from 19, the 1960s yeah. as a consequence of why. There's certainly no agent in the field. There's no CIA, you know, live agent from the 1960s mm -hmm. who's still hobbling around somewhere. You know, that's just, a, it's, it's not, it's not the case. The comedian's dead. So, you saw Watchmen. That's he. He assassinates Kennedy in uh, Watchmen. I, that's that's way too far back in my yeah. my movie my TV watching memory banks here. But I also wanted to ask you, Robbie, what you made of Kirby's little aside about yes, I've seen the discourse on your network. Yes. You know, is that the kind of tone that someone who is you know, ostensibly representing the people as a member of the president's press corps should be striking with reporters in the room? I mean. Whatever, I guess. It was it was a little bit of a dismissive tone. But, you know, Fox is pretty harsh toward the administration and so fine, I don't care. They're 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 big boys, they can handle it. Um, John Kirby, by the way, you know, is a is a person who is he going to—I would love him to get a question every day about Nord Stream in addition to all this stuff, I, know. I should say. Well, look, I, I guess my issue with it is that I think he was trying to play it both ways. He's trying to say, well, it's the Biden administration that now has two two agencies that have come forward and said that lab leak is more likely than not, kind of saying, well, you know, we, we're playing ball here. We're not completely stonewalling you anymore. We're open to the idea of lab leak theory. Don't, don't come for mm -hmm. us. But also, I'm setting up an adversarial relationship— 
even though I'm saying, oh, no, 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 we're, we're both investigating loudly, then I'm going to set up an adversarial relationship by jabbing you with, well, I've seen the coverage of, on your network that's yeah. presumptively unfair. That's fair. Of course we know. I and mean, I, we all know that these networks have their biases, and Fox News is no friend of Joe Biden. But what happened to, what happened to the Michelle Obama era of you go low, we go high? I do think there's a, it's about protecting one's own credibility at the pulpit, in the press room, as opposed to what is actually, what, what Peter Ducey actually deserves right. to have in terms and of- And there's some of that on the journalist it. side, too. We talked about yesterday, the ridiculous little bit of like journalism solidarity against being mar marshaled yeah. in defense of the administration, in defense of the spokesperson, Karine yes. Jean-Pierre, against a journalist who dared to ask a question out of turn. We talked about that yesterday. That was so ridiculous. Yes, yeah, so the dynamics in there, I mean, I think, look, uh, there's a great podcast that is now ended called The West Wing Thing with two leftists who basically critique liberals from taking too much advice uh, as to how real politics actually works by listening to the uh, watching the West Wing TV show yeah, from the 90s. People really took 90s. that one to heart, huh? And when I, I never do I think of the kind of West Wing brain rot more than when I see the dynamics that emerge in the briefing mm -hmm. room, because everybody thinks they're C.J. Craig. Everybody thinks that they're best friends with the people in the room. I also am thinking back to just last week with that moment where Karine Jean-Pierre made this off-the-cuff criticism of Marianne Williamson's campaign as having to do with crystals and orbs. And they all chuckled. And then they chuckled. Yeah. Um, like she's doing a stand-up routine. And it's, it's Pretty something... Pretty stuff, guys. You know, it's, 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 it, it's not giving impartiality. It's not giving, I'm a voice of an administration that's supposed to be the, a voice and spokesperson for all Americans. And I, I, I can't help but think that if Donald Trump and his spokespeople were in the room doing those kinds of things, we'd be talking about how it was undermining democracy and the, the integrity of a Republican primary process and how dare he do campaigning from the pulpit and all of those kinds of things. Anyway, just as a reminder, the information we're trying to get out of the administration is what was the intelligence that the Energy Department looked at that caused them to reach a conclusion that aligns with the FBI but does not align with some other government agencies. Yeah. This is very potentially interesting stuff. Yes. What did they see? I'd like to know. Uh, but we're going to have to wait until they decide that it's safe. safe yeah, we got to get you a press room briefing pass, maybe, Robbie. Well, we don't. Have, we don't. Have, neither of us have time to go there. We're making the show while they're doing the. Uh, it's true. Ryan Grimm used to attend. So I have attended long time ago. I've attended before. Um, actually, I attended when I was a when I was a very lowly reporter at another publication. Um, I was there for the press conference. Uh, it was relating to Benghazi mm. it was, during the Obama administration, where he ended up saying it was the, the action that was taken against Gaddafi was because everyone was so upset about that movie. Um, which ended up not being the case at all. Oh, I do remember, remember that. that. I do remember that. <laughs> so it actually was a kind of interesting uh, day. In, in that it turned out to be. It didn't seem interesting at the time, but later it was like, remember when they said it was that movie? It totally was not. Just yeah. a spontaneous yeah, reaction yeah. to that movie. Yeah. Anyway, we will have more rising right after this. Please stay tuned. Today marked the end of a three-day visit Chinese President Xi Jinping made to Moscow. Now, neither side seemed to change their position on Ukraine. In fact, according to reporters, Xi sought to maintain an impartial position with respect to the conflict. But regardless of what came out of the rendezvous, the United States has denounced the meeting from the get-go, a point that many foreign policy relations experts say could push China and Russia closer and closer. Mm. Here to discuss how the U.S. could be missing an opportunity in this international relations game of chess is friend of the show, Trita Parsi, an executive vice president of the Quincy Institute. Welcome, Dr. Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I, you had written a piece recently that made the case that, uh, you know, Russia, China has gone out of its way to say things about how countries have to respect ter territorial borders, a much more moderate position than some of the Western press might be framing it as having. But the fact of the U.S. Po US's posture is basically putting it in a position of needing to maintain good relationships with other global powers, given that the U.S. has been so kind of hawkish toward China of late. Can you unpack the kind of changing geopolitical dynamics that are happening here? Yes, and again, thank you so much for having me. Look, things are changing in a very profound way. We have now China last week or the week before pulling off a normalization in the Middle East between Iran and Saudi Arabia. No one expected them to wanting to have the ambition of playing that role. Now we see the Chinese are in uh, Moscow and, and stepping into potentially mediating between uh, Russia and the Ukrainians. And the reaction from the U.S. side or the, the, the traditional role of the U.S. to be able to be a peacemaker seems to be something that we have given up the ambition of having. We are increasingly uh, in, uh, we're increasingly in conflict rather than being able to help bring conflicts to a close. And this is creating a space for the Chinese that could be quite problematic if the U.S. doesn't reassess the direction it is taking and the branding that it is now creating for itself uh, in terms of states turning to China for mediation rather than looking towards the U.S. as a, uh, a stabilizing force. I don't think per se that it's a bad thing for the world to have many um, uh, peacemakers and others wanting to step up. I, I find it to be a bad thing if the U.S. steps down and no longer has the ambition to be able to play such a role. Well, turning to the war in Ukraine, uh, Dr. Parsi, last year you wrote an opinion piece for MSNBC in which you made the case that while Ukrainian President Zelensky did a masterful job in courting support from the West, he's been less convincing to nations in the global South, like the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and others. Walk us through how the U.S. played a role in keeping the global South from lending more support to Ukraine. Well, I think that the, the U.S. has tried very hard to get other countries in the global South to support uh, sanctions against Russia and joining in on what is now largely a Western effort to support Ukraine. It's just done so with an immense amount of tone deafness, which is part of the reason why it's been an utter failure. And it's not just a failure. I wrote that piece, I think, in April of last year with a warning that we have to change tact if we want to be successful here. And I've not seen any significant effort. And part of the reason is because the U.S. and the Ukrainians was, were branding this, they were framing this as a fight for the rules-based order. Whereas in reality, in the eyes of a lot of countries around the world, the biggest threat to any order that is based on rules has been the conduct of the United States itself with its endless wars, interventions, and putting itself above those rules. So if you want to get countries to make sacrifices, painful sacrifices, on behalf of the war effort uh, in Ukraine, you, you have to frame it differently for something that they were actually willing to sacrifice for, because no one is going to lift much of a finger for this rules-based order. On the contrary, a lot of countries in the global south welcome the, a new world that is multipolar, in which they will remain close friends with the United States, but they want to have options to be able to balance the U.S. if the U.S. ends up acting recklessly, which unfortunately we have uh, in the last decade. Uh, and that option is provided in a multipolar order that doesn't exist in a unipolar order. So why would they step up for that? If this was framed more along the lines of 
uh, preventing aggression, standing up for um, um, uh, the sovereignty of Ukraine. I think things could have ended up quite differently. But we were so drunk on our own Kool-Aid and thinking that this truly is a fight for the rules-based order and that we have the world behind us. And it's proven to be a mistake. And it's a mistake that we continue to conduct because we're not reassessing it in the manner that we should. Well, Dr. Percy, what do you make of the Western position on the ceasefire, the idea that to call for a ceasefire now is basically entrenching Russia's position and validating its uh, territorial claims, basically stopping everything where it is in a way that advantages Russia, um, the countervailing view being that ceasefires are good things, um, it's good if Ukrainians are no longer literally in, in harm's way. How can America continue to participate, as you urged it to do, in the peace process if it seems to not be willing to accept any position other than full retrenchment from Russia back to the pre-February 2022 borders? Or do you agree that that's a position that the U.S. should be taking? Well, my view is that, look, ceasefires can be good. Ceasefires can also backfire. But at the end of the day, uh, what is our alternative? What are we putting forward as something that would be better? Uh, and the only thing we're talking about right now is a spring offensive by the Ukrainians that the White House apparently doesn't believe is going to change much on the ground. So we're going to have a lot of people dying, similar to the way it was in the First World War. Uh, a lot of fighting, a lot of dying, and the uh, uh, the front lines are changing a couple of inches this direction or that direction. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think we also have to be clear that just starting diplomacy does not mean that the fighting on the ends would treat the beginning of diplomacy as an automatic ceasefire. I don't think that's necessarily the case. Unfortunately, there's plenty of examples in which the sides are talking and fighting at the same time. So the question I have, why are we so afraid and opposed to the idea that while the war continues, forget about a ceasefire for a second, there actually would be ongoing diplomacy as well. And perhaps that diplomacy will lead to a breakthrough. Perhaps it will lead to a ceasefire that the U.S. also believes is uh, uh, beneficial. The other problem I have with the way that we're approaching this is that when the Ukrainians, for instance, cautiously welcome the Chinese mediation, we did not, and we came out very strongly and said that the world should not be fooled by what the Chinese are trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. So it raises the question mark, why is it that we believe that Ukrainian agency should be absolutely central as long as they're pursuing war? But if the Ukrainians actually do want to move in the direction of a potential Chinese mediation, then we're against it. So what happens then to the agency? If the agency is central, it should be central not only when the Ukrainians are waging war, but also when they're pursuing peace. But we're very selective about it. Absolutely. That would be totally uh, consistent. So based on that hypocrisy on the U.S.'s part, is there a real fear that what the Biden administration's actual position is, you know, forget what the Ukrainian position is, we don't care. What we actually want is to bleed Russia for as long as possible and you know, not have any compromise whatsoever, not give up a single uh, inch of Russian territory, even if that means more people die, the war goes on, because really our ultimate goal is to just make Russia keep feeling the pain for having done this uh, until and unless they give up entirely, which may never happen. I have to say that, you know, talking to European diplomats, one is oftentimes left with the impression that it is really not about the Ukrainians. It is about making sure 
that the Russians suffer as big of a defeat as possible, that they are essentially, in their view, sufficiently weakened before this war ends. And the ones who pay the price for it are the Ukrainian people with their blood. And we seem to be okay with it. Because otherwise, in my view at least, the, the logic seems to fall apart as to why we are so worried about the initiation of diplomacy. Again, initiation of diplomacy is not automatically a ceasefire. Um, uh, so th there seems to be a fear that the war would end prematurely, so, so to say. I don't like the use of language here, but nevertheless, prematurely before the Russians have been sufficiently weakened. And that the only way we actually can get a stable situation is not by being able to bring, uh, build an in in inclusive security arrangement uh, and coexist, but we can only actually have a sustainable peace if the Russians are so weak that they cannot challenge them. Hmm. Dr. Parsi, we always appreciate you weighing in on these issues. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. A drag show fundraiser planned at West Texas A&M University was canceled by the university's president for being too divisive, raising alarm bells among First Amendment advocates. In a letter sent to students titled, A Harmless Drag Show? No Such Thing, President Walter Windler said the scheduled performance would not be happening and claimed drag shows discriminate against women, writing, quote, does a drag show preserve a single thread of human dignity? I think not. Wendler went on to compare drag shows to performing in blackface and said he could not support such an event on campus. Quote, drag shows are derisive, divisive, demoralizing misogyny. Proceeds of the sh uh, proceeds of the show were set to benefit the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention organization for LGBTQ plus youth. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression responded to Wendler, writing, "Quote: As an individual, Wendler can criticize this particular drag show or the existence of drag at large. No reasonable person would argue that public university administrators personally endorse the views expressed by every event hosted by every student group on campus. But as a government actor, President Wendler cannot co-opt state power." to force his own views on the community, which is completely correct. This is a transparent First Amendment violation. I mean, you can set aside one's personal feelings about drag. There is This is a public university for adults. Adults. Uh, this is not involving, like, little kids being exposed to sexually explicit material. This is adults, and it's a public university, and you, the, the president cannot they, they couldn't say they couldn't say you can't have a pro-life event. They couldn't say you can't have a, a, a pro-Second Amendment event. They, they don't get to discriminate ideologically against events. For, you get to, you know, whenever I mean, conservatives have have come become very famous for complaining about when when liberal students or administrators, you know, shut shut down the Ben Shapiro event or the Heather McDonald event or the Christina Hoff Summers event or whatever it is. Um, that's because that, that is bad and counter to the spirit yep. of the First Amendment. And it's public university campus. This is the same. The, the the president cannot. I mean, he should he should resign. For I mean, and often understood the, the First Amendment so poorly. And often the critique of liberals by conservatives is that not even that an event was shut down, but that it was mm -hmm. booed or protested or students turned their backs or something like that. Which again, now yeah. we're having a conversation. There about was a phase where they were getting the the heckling would get them to the, they would make threats and then the administration would shut it down. Sure, but I mean yeah. the last one we talked about on the show, I think it was at a Florida university. There was protesting on a stairwell yeah, yeah, outside, yeah, yeah. and that still became a problem that justified 
yeah. you know, a bunch of people complaining about the hecklers and now whose First Amendment rights to protest prevail, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. In this context, I got to say, as much as I'm no fan of blackface, I don't even know that the president can step in and say, that is prohibited on campus. No, All can't. kinds of events are, happen can't. on campus. There was a movie that was popular a few years ago called Dear White People that was notable because at the, in the end credits, the movie was about kind mm -hmm. of... Uh, racist party themes on campus. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the movie, they had real life footage, like cell phone footage of uh, like a montage of all of the like pimps and hoes style parties where people were dressed mm -hmm. up as black folks at all of these predominantly white institutions. That, that sort of thing happens all the time on college campuses. Trudeau is famously pictured in a, a blackface man who <laughs> loves to dress up. That man loves costumes. So this isn't about what, what we approve of. It's about what is yeah. usually permitted to happen on a college campus. I mean, this I, letter from the president is wild. Um, I believe every human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, a person of dignity, being in, created in God's image, is based in natural. And it's fine. You can have that opinion. That's totally fine. But this is a, or you could be a president of like a Christian university that doesn't have the same, that is not bound to follow the First Amendment, it doesn't take public funding, that's all fine too, but he's the president of a public university. Yeah, you I mean, can't... we had a, a, a drag event, I guess you could call it that, but no, it's men, it's a theater performance, the Hasty Pudding theater performance where people routinely dress up in a gender other than their own, and it's like a historical tradition on Harvard's campus. Yeah. There's just so much stuff that will get caught up in rules like this. That's what I tweet, actually, that was a tweet I had in response to this, I'm like, are we forgetting that, like drag, like drag was a common uh, element of of the military yes. for like the last two hundred years? Shakespeare, because there weren't any women, so yes. like South Pacific, yes, that kind of stuff. It's not Watch always that man I, right I, out of my hair. <laughs> it's not always. Um, it's not always. I, I I know what I mean. I, I guess the good faith conservative criticism right now is that they don't like these the very sexually explicit ones and they don't like uh, being with the, and children attending them which fine but this is well, but that, we, that's we don't know if this was sexually explicit right, or not and there's certainly no children involved here right well actor billy porter spoke out on the new discourse over drag queens while on the view this week let's take a listen Follow the money, follow the power, power at any cost. It's very hypocritical. You know, the, the, the leading cause of death in children are guns. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're guns. Yeah. I know it's the morning and I'm not supposed to be screaming, but they're guns. Yeah. Not you know, drag queens. Not drag queens. No. Leave us alone. Yes. You know, and it just... It's a distraction. It's a distraction on purpose. We don't know what to pay. We don't know what to pay attention to. You know, our justice system is convoluted. It's hard to understand on purpose. Let's be clear about that. Yeah. It's on purpose. You know, it was like when we were talking when we were talking about Roe Ro v. Wade that the word codified came up. I was like, what is that? Yeah. And y'all didn't do it for 50 years. Yeah. What? happening, yeah. you know, su subpoenas. If any one of us is subpoenaed we, and we don't go, we end up in jail, you right? Get a little perp walk. You get what a little perp are walk. we talking about and what are we doing? And everybody's so scared because, oh, if we do that, then we might have a civil war. We're already in a civil war, y'all. It's a civil war of the mind. 
we're already in a civil war. I guess he get him and Tim Pool in agreement, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff at the end aside, I think he was making some really good points mm. about how this discourse can start to skew what our political priorities are. This is something well, that came fine. up on, on, on this show recently, where there was a debate about whether or not we should be more attentive to things about, like, the fact that most child death, the leading cause of child death in this country is gun violence, certainly not drag mm -hmm. shows. And even to the extent that you're concerned about grooming and sexual content that kids are being exposed to, when you look down the list of who is, the, what groups are routinely perpetrators of sexual violence against children, it's institutions like the church and institutions uh, of people who are in a child of more proximity with children and who are trusted in their care, not public shows that a small fraction of parents even choose to bring children to in the first place. That's like blaming a rated R movie for a rampant uh, child molestation because some parent somewhere takes their child to go see it. Yeah, there's there's sexual abuse in non-Christian schools as well. Of course, but I, yeah, there's there's very little bordering on none being perpetrated by drag people yeah, as children. It's, it's, it's it is absurd. a little bit. I, I mean, I think Billy Porter was, um, he was enunciating very powerfully. I don't know <laughs> if all of the underlying points there were, I'm not sure what the follow the, follow the money, follow the power necessarily has to do in this Well, I, look, I, I, case, I say this on the but, show all uh, the time. I do, fine. I do think there's an fine. argument that when you have people like Christopher Rufo being funded, and explicitly saying that his goal is to use words with wishy-washy meanings, with flexible meanings, with meanings that are not entirely understood, like CRT, like woke, and to use those as a focal point for people to project their ire, some of it legitimate, some of it not, and to expand a coalition of people who think they're mad at something. That is, yes, a, a distraction from the substantive economic issues that working class people, including working class populist right-leaning Republicans, absolutely want their, um, their political leaders to be responsive to. But, you know, Ron DeSantis is not saying we're going to make Florida a place where everyone gets a living wage and, you know, where people can afford rent. He's saying, I want to make Florida the place where woke goes to die. Those are political choices that are being made. And does the fact that he is able, you know, if he weren't able to talk about the wokeness, would there be a more noticeable void in what some of these politicians are offering up prescripti prescriptively for their constituents? Mm. Um, and it also uh, speaks to, I totally lost what my train of thought no, was listen, coming out of that. Well, I mean, why are you thinking about it? I, I think it's also true, by the way, I just would add that the D Democrats do some version of this as well. There's Democrats who get on TV, I said I talked about this in my radar a little bit, and say, well, we care about mm -hmm. gay people, and we care about black people, and we care about immigrants, and therefore don't notice that we're also not offering anything substantively to any of those Oh, groups. I remember what I wanted to say. So, no, I want to go back to the Civil War uh, rhetoric mm. for a minute, though. It is interesting to see him say that, though, because uh, conservatives I take a lot of flack for saying that we should have, mm -hmm. like, a national divorce and a separate... I mean, this is why I've said it's not... Even if you think the idea doesn't make a lot of sense, in theory, at least, there could be some Democrats or liberals or leftist people who, who support going their own way. Who, you know, what if we didn't... What if we just had different rules and, like, you want to live under different rules and I want to live under different rules? We could just have... Well, isn't that, different. that's not what federalism was supposed to be in the right, first exactly. place. Well, the, We're supposed to, add, add, to the extent we can, devolve decision-making to local, at the more, more and more local level, and get out of each other's hair, and that would be a happier, saner place. Yeah, the problem is that communities are much more local than the state level. And yeah. while there are elites, I think, in both parties that are really excited about the idea of a national divorce, because they can pick up and go, and they've already mm -hmm. used their 
kind of economic freedom to live where they want to live, you know, some California bourgeois type might say, yes, let's divorce from the rest of the country. But, you know, most Mm -hmm. most black Americans live in red states um, because we lived where we used to work when we worked for free. And so, I mean, those are the kinds of things that people overlook. And we live in communities. And even when we disagree politically, many of us have families that are ideologically diverse. And, you know, I value being an American. And I think you've said this as well. I value all parts of the American community. I think it's um, a real... It's a, it's a, it's, it speaks very poorly of where we are as a community that we would even jump to that kind of a place uh, and believe that the divisions are that deep when I, in fact, believe that they aren't. And that conversations about things like drag brunches, which is yeah. truly just not an, I think an it, issue for anybody. I think it shows you that the rhetoric of total war, of, of we're in a civil war, can actually, it's a, it, I see it appeals to liberals as well. Yeah, I, I agree. But if we were talking about health care, if we were talking about a living wage, if we were talking about the housing crisis, this would not seem like a divisive conversation and people would not be talking about mm-hmm. a civil war. And we have to start asking ourselves, why is it that we're not talking about those things? Why is it that we're always pushed to talk about mm-hmm. uh, your favorite uh, drag brunch performer? disagree as bitterly on those things as well. But, uh, <laughs> but well, we, we can di- we'll disagree on those things, but we don't actually disagree you on the, disagree the, over the drag, drag performers. Weekend, we can disagree probably. over drag brunch. Okay. <laughs> well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be back with more of the great Rising coverage you know and love. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. They're going to be playing this music in clubs. Very soon. <laughs> it's going to be like the, the White Lotus soundtrack. Which I hope so. Clubs. We're going to hear it. We're going to be we're going to be uh, dropping a sick beat. Yeah. Is that what Maybe is? even Robbie at a drag brunch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> See you later. See you later. Bye bye.